We're going to be Matthew 22 today. Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 to 46. Have you ever heard the statement, there's no such thing as a bad question? That person's never dealt with preschoolers before. <laughs> no, no, it's great because like they want to learn. They just want to soak it all in and their brains go to crazy places. Like, okay, you can have five snacks. Why do birds fly? Uh... Okay, now we're going to get some juice. Why? Where's Jupiter? It's like, wait a minute. We're not talking about those things. But questions can be a good thing. You know, they might come from curiosity and a desire to learn more. Like, why is the sky blue? Why do we drive on parkways but park on driveways? Did Adam and Eve have a belly button? I mean, these are good questions in life. Those are curious, right? We can learn more. You're going to go home thinking about that one. Did Adam and Eve have a belly button? The answer to it is maybe. Sometimes questions can clear up misunderstandings. I was a youth pastor for about 10 years. And one of the hardest parts of my job as being a youth pastor was giving instructions to the youth about games. It became a running joke in our youth group how detailed I would be in the game instructions because they love to sit there and say, yeah, but what about, well, but I you didn't say that I couldn't turn around and run the complete opposite direction. It's like, well, it's implied. We're on a baseball diamond. You don't go that way. You didn't say that. Sometimes we just want a little more information, kind of clear up some misunderstanding. Maybe a, a spouse or, or someone asks someone else, well, why did you say what you said? What did you mean by that? Can you just help me to understand this a little better? Maybe your boss comes to you and says, I need you to do something. Okay, how? How do you want me to do that? I want to make sure I do it correctly. So questions can clear up misunderstandings. But I think we also need to be honest with ourselves that sometimes questions can reveal something about our heart. Sometimes they're showing that there's more behind the question than just the question. Sometimes there's an implied judgment. You know, it's okay to ask somebody, why did you do this? Can you explain this to me? But sometimes the question is, why did you do that? And we're sitting in judgment on, you should not have done that, is sort of the statement behind it. There's a judgment implied in the statement or in the question. We think we know better, and that's why we're asking. Sometimes there's doubt behind a question. We want to ask God a question because we think he's not actually able to do something. People like to argue or Discuss. We'll go with discuss whether or not God created the the world in a literal six days. That's an interesting discussion, and I think it's it can be discussed. We can all each have our own opinions on that. But so often when people come and they ask that question, "Do you think God really did this?" There's an implication behind it. I don't believe that it is possible for God to do that. Well, that I have a problem with. Whether I agree with your conclusion or not, I have a problem with that. When there's doubt behind the question, what we're saying is we know better than God. We know what God can and cannot do. Really? Do we? Sometimes I think we hide behind questions. I want to follow Jesus. 
but I need to know why God did this first. And it's like we just plant our feet in the ground. I'm not moving another inch, Lord, until you explain this to me. That's not an honest question. That's a question that comes from doubt. It's a question that says, God, I'm more important than you. It's a question that says, I don't trust you until you can properly answer this in a way that makes sense to me. In the passage that we're looking at today, some groups of people come to Jesus, three groups, all kind of related to one another, and they ask three different questions. And what you're going to see is that these are not what I would call good, honest questions. These people aren't looking to just grow. They're looking to challenge. These are questions of doubt and challenging. And at the end of this, Jesus is going to ask them a question. And when Jesus asks a question, we need to really look at that and say, why? What is so important about that question? Let's look at the first question. I call this a question of sides. It's like these people are coming to Jesus and they want to know, which side of a debate are you on, Jesus? Now, let's set the scene here in case you haven't been with us. We're in Matthew chapter 22. This is what's often known as the Passion Week or the Holy Week. It's the week right before Jesus goes to the cross. He has entered Jerusalem as a triumphant king. People have cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, basically declaring, this is our Messiah. And then as the week goes on, there's more and more questions and doubts. And concerns. Jesus goes into the temple and he turns over the tables of those that were selling sacrifices for a huge profit for themselves or offering to exchange money at a huge profit for themselves. And he, he cleanses the temple and he chases those people out. There's been several parables of Jesus pronouncing judgment on the religious leaders. And as you can imagine, that didn't make them very happy. And so they come and they have some questions. As far as we know, this would be considered Tuesday of that week. If you're kind of wanting to chart out how this week is going, it's Tuesday before the Friday when Jesus would be put on the cross. In this first question, we have a group of Pharisees come, and they have a question about taxes, Roman taxes. We need to know a couple things. Who are the Pharisees? Pharisees were Jewish religious leaders. Jewish religious leaders that had this idea that if we could get God's people, the Jewish people, to return to the Old Testament law, to live a holy, righteous life, then the Messiah would come. It's our job to prepare the people for the Messiah. That's good. Unfortunately, the way they went about it was not so good. They took the law that said, don't do this, and they said, okay, we're going to help people to not do that by saying, don't do this, or this, or this, or this, or this, or this, and protect the law, keep you as far away from doing the wrong thing as possible. The problem is those other rules they made up became more important than God's law. And they used those things to judge other people. The things that were supposed to be helpful became part of their judgment on others. The other thing was that they were often very hypocritical in their own keeping of their own laws. But the Pharisees hated the Romans. They saw these outsiders as this oppressive force, which they were. And they wanted God to rise up and overthrow them. 
The other thing is about these taxes. Roman taxes were collected often by people of the land. We know Matthew himself, the writer of this gospel, was a Jewish tax collector. He was a Jewish person who collected taxes on behalf of the oppressive conquering army, the Romans. This did not make him the favorite people or favorite person among his people. The taxes were often exorbitant. Sometimes what was required to be collected by the government was lower than what was actually uh, collected by the tax collectors, and they would keep the profit. So this was a very important topic of their day. So let's look at what's going on in verses 15 and 16. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him, talking about Jesus, in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Now, right away, look at that first phrase. They had a plan to trap him. That tells you what's behind their question. They're not just coming to learn. They want to trap Jesus. And look at who they send. Some of the disciples of the Pharisees. Those are like little Pharisees. They want to be big Pharisees someday. Not children, but students. And the Herodians. Now, this is crazy. Because the Herodians were people, Jewish people, that said the best way to live today is by getting along with the Romans. They're our pals. They're our buddies. These people tended to be very wealthy. They tended to not be all that Jewish anymore. They didn't really care that much about the Old Testament law as long as they could get along with the Romans. Now think, Pharisees hate the Romans, want to go back to the Old Testament law. Herodians love the Romans, don't really care about the Old Testament law. Do you think these people were friends? No. And yet they come together to trap Jesus. And I love their words here. They they butter him up. We know that you're a man full of integrity and you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. These words that they're saying, they're putting Jesus in a difficult position. If he answers their question incorrectly, it's going to be like Jesus saying, I'm not really who you're saying I am. I'm not really full of integrity. They are laying a public trap. Let's look at the question, verse 17. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Now, that might seem very mundane. This is not a question about religious freedom. This is a question saying Jesus Whose side are you on here? The Herodians that want to side with the Romans or the Pharisees that want to side with the Jewish people. Notice the genius of their trap. If Jesus says, yes, you should pay the tax, the Pharisees can go to the Jewish people and say, look at this guy. He's not for you. He's not one of us. He's giving in to our oppressors. And if he says, no, you shouldn't pay the tax, the Herodians can go back to their friends in the government and say, this guy is starting a rebellion. He's teaching people to not pay their taxes. No matter what Jesus says here, he's trapped. Somebody's going to get mad at him and he's going to get in trouble. This is their plan. They want Jesus to pick a side. You ever feel pressured in that? There's like a a debate or an argument going on, maybe in our culture, in our world, 
politics. Maybe it's philosophical ideas. And somebody wants you to pick a side. Are you with these people or are you with these people? Are you with us or are you against us? Look at how Jesus answers, starting in verse 18. But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, and he asked them, Whose image is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, So give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God. Jesus knows what they're trying to do. He's not fooled by this at all. In fact, the word there, the NIV kind of glosses over this, but when he says, why are you trying to trap me? He actually uses a different word. The word there is more like a testing or attempting. He knows they're trying to get him to do something that will be evil in the sight of others. Why are you doing this? He's challenging their hearts. And he has them bring a coin. Much like our coins today, there would be a picture of someone on the front and some inscriptions on the coin. In this case, there was a picture of the Caesar, the current Roman emperor. And under that picture was an inscription, the son of the divine Augustus. That was the Caesar's father. Now, understand what the coin is saying. The person whose picture is on the coin is the son of a god because they believed that that particular Roman emperor was a god. The son of God. You see the irony here? They have a coin that says this person is the son of God. If you were to flip it over, it said on the back in in Greek, it said Pontifex, Pontifex Maximus, which the Jews would have understood very clearly to translate to the high priest. Pontifex Maximus. So you have a coin that declares the Roman emperor to be the son of God and the great high priest. This coin, as you could imagine, was deeply offensive to the Jewish people. It was. The very coin itself was a symbol of idolatry. And Jesus, instead of getting involved in their debate, he redefines the sides of the debate entirely. He says, look, give to Caesar... What belongs to Caesar? Why are you so worried about worldly things? This Roman emperor has a tax. It's his thing. Just give it to him. Why are you so focused on that? But then he redirects them and says, but understand this. You give to God what belongs to God. See, their focus was in the right, the wrong place. They were focusing in, should we do something in this world or not? And he says, you need to set your sights much higher. And he's challenging the Pharisees. They thought they were so righteous by challenging this Roman tax, but they were failing to truly give their lives to God, to trust him, to worship him, to give him their obedience. Have you heard the phrase, in but not of the world? That phrase isn't technically in scripture like that, Uh, In John chapter 17, Jesus is praying for his disciples, and he talks about that they are not of this world. And he does pray that God would not take them out of this world, but they would live for God in this world. So it's a good phrase. The phrase itself just isn't a direct quote. But this is a good example of being in, but not of this world. They live in a Roman-occupied country. He says, look, you have certain obligations. 
Why are you so hung up on this? Pay this. But understand that the true measure of your soul is whether or not you are giving proper authority to the Lord God most high. And here's what's really interesting to me in this. The Romans, the Roman government, the Roman rulers, the Roman governors, the Roman emperor were horrible people. Horrible. And yet he's saying, you should pay this tax. The tax system was completely messed up. People were getting rich off of oppressing their own people. Matthew would have been very wealthy before he followed Jesus, and he gave it away. It was a horrible, messed up, corrupt system. And yet, understand what Jesus, the Son of God, says. He said, look, you need to pay that tax. Christians, we get so hung up sometimes. Should I do this? The government's out to do this. Keep your focus off of that. Look, we live in this world. We have certain obligations. That's fine. But let's keep our focus on our Heavenly Father. We all too often fight the wrong battles because our focus is in the wrong place. Ultimately, Jesus, I think, here is challenging the question. It is a bad question because it reveals that their hearts are focusing in the wrong place. In verse 22, it says, when they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. Remember, they came to trap him. And if he said yes, he was in trouble with this group. If he said no, he was in trouble with this group. But what he said left them both going, aha, oh, wait. We got you. No, we don't. They didn't trap him. He walked right out of their trap. And actually, their trap became a rebuke on them. That's the power and the wisdom of the Son of God. Often, choosing sides in debates is such a distraction. It it, it keeps us from focusing on what's most important. I feel so often today, and and it was true back then as well, that people just want to lump us into certain groups because of things we say, certain words or phrases or ideas that we say. It's like going to Kansas and telling somebody, boy, you know, Kansas is really flat, and they go, aha, you're a flat earther. Wait a minute. That's not what I said. Yes, you did. You said Kansas was flat. No, no, the earth is round. Oh, now you're not a flat earther and you don't actually believe that Kansas is flat. Now you're saying Kansas is round. Wait a minute. I'm saying this. Kansas is flat. Why are we talking about a flat earth? Because they want you to choose sides. Have you ever had conversations with someone like that? I had one recently. Talking theology with someone. Oh, you're this. Wait a minute. I'm not even talking about that. Well, so you're this. No, I'm not talking about that either. But but I'm following Jesus, and the Bible says this. Well, you have to be that or that. No, I don't. Those are just human beings. I'm following Jesus. Oh, so you agree with so-and-so. I don't even know so-and-so. Why do I have to agree with them or disagree with them? I'm following Jesus. I think as Christians, we can all too often do this. We get our camps. We get our theological systems. And we're always looking, are you on this side or that side? And these sides can be such a distraction. We need to understand that ultimately there are two sides in every issue. There's God's side and the world's side. And we need to choose what is most important in our life. We need to keep our focus on God. Sometimes these questions 
about sides and seeking to define people are part of what reveal our hearts. Sometimes it's a question of doubt. In verses 23 through 33, another group comes to Jesus. And they have a question as well. But it's not necessarily this question to learn more. It comes out of they have already decided that Jesus is wrong about something. And they're using this question to point out how ridiculous he is. This group is the Sadducees. The Sadducees are almost the direct opposite of the Pharisees. Much like the Herodians, they believed in giving in to the the secular authorities, to the Roman Empire. They tended to be very wealthy. They also only held to the first five books of the Old Testament. The rest of it they rejected entirely. And, And so their understanding about God was kind of stunted. They sort of wanted to pick and choose what they would believe in. Now let's look at their question, verses 23 through 24. That same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection. Now that's a key point here. One of the things they rejected was a common understanding of the Jewish people that there is in some way, shape, or form, they didn't know how, but those that have died would be resurrected. Again, they didn't have a complete understanding that came fuller in the New Testament, but there was an understanding of the resurrection. But the the Sadducees said, no way. We do not accept this at all. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. Now, this is a, a reference to the Jewish law. If uh, So, for instance, I have a brother, and if my brother was to pass away, I am required by law, Jewish law, to have a child of my Sister-in-law, this is weird, okay, today's, but in their culture, it was not weird, all right? But understand why. The land was passed down through the offspring. And for the Jewish people, the land was a gift of God, and they could not lose the land. And so they had to have a system where the land would stay in the family, and this was a way to do it. But their question isn't really about this. So now they're going to take that and say, okay, we all agree this is a law, right? And everybody said, yep, yep, we agree this is a law. Here's where they have their doubts. Verse 25, now there were several brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and the third brother, right down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Verse 28, now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? Now, they start off by saying there were several brothers among us. Personally, I don't think they're referring to an actual case here. I mean, that would be a bit out there. I think they're making this up. I think this is one of those hypothetical, philosophical, theological word plays where they're going, hmm, let's consider an extreme instance. And let's pin you to the wall on the extreme instance. You need to explain this to me and you need to do it now. Because they have their doubts about the resurrection. And so they use this hypothetical situation as an argument to show how ridiculous the concept of the resurrection was. It's a made up, their idea is a made up human argument to try to uphold their made up human idea against the resurrection. And look at what Jesus says, verse 29. Jesus replied, you are Now, understand these are Jewish leaders. These are people that would have been in the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. Like They knew the word of God really well. They taught the word of God. He says, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. 
ouch. They say, let's get right to the heart of the matter here. You don't know what you're talking about. See, this is a danger when we sit in judgment on God's word. Well, I know better than the word of God. Do you really? You know, pick up the end of the book of Job and read it several times where God comes to Job and says, where were you when I created the world? Can you bring forth the rain? Can you bring forth the sun? Can you create the animals? One after another after another. He says, Job, you're not me. You don't know what you're talking about. That's what Jesus is saying to them here. You don't know the scriptures. You don't know the power of God. People come with questions of faith all the time. I don't understand this in scripture. And that's good if it's like, I want to learn and I want to grow. But so often it's, I don't understand this in scripture. I think it's silly. I think it's ridiculous. And I just want to stop and say, do you understand what you're saying? You're saying you know more than God Almighty who gave us his word. Think carefully about the position you're putting yourself in. It's good to ask questions. There are a lot of things in Scripture we don't understand when we grow in, and we hope one day when we see Jesus face to face, we will learn more and understand more. But that's very different than saying, I think this is dumb. I think God got this one wrong. God, this doesn't make any sense. I doubt that it's even true. Jesus then answers their question in verse 30. It says that the resurrection people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. What Jesus is saying is that in the resurrection, their, their categories are messed up. They don't understand that in eternity, it's not going to be like now. Now, I know this is hard. Okay, listen to me. I, I know some people and understand their focus is in the right, wrong place. So we need to be careful we don't allow our focus to be in the wrong place. But it's important to deal with what Jesus says. There will be no more marriage in the resurrection. Well, won't I know my husband or wife? Absolutely. Won't I love them? Absolutely. We will, every one of us, love each other perfectly In the resurrection. In the resurrection time, you could not possibly love someone else more than you do now. Or you could not love them possibly more than you do anybody else. That's what I meant to say. I don't know what I said, but it was wrong. (laughs) So here's where we struggle, because it's like, but but so-and-so knows me perfectly. Yes. Everyone will know you perfectly. And everyone will love you perfectly. And it'll be beautiful. It'll be far better than what we have here. Let's trust our Heavenly Father. Heaven does not work according to our categories. But again, let's not just get hung up here because this isn't really the heart of the issue and we need to be careful not to allow it become the heart of our issue. Wait a minute, I doubt what God is saying here. Hold on. Let's look at what Jesus says next. Verse 31. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? See, that's the real issue here. They doubted that God could raise people from the dead. They doubted that God could do this. And he says, I am the God. uh, Have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. 
Jesus uses something that they claimed to believe in. And he says, even these things that you accept prove that you are wrong. God is the God of the living. How can he be the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob who are long dead? How can he presently be their God if they have already passed away? And he says, because they haven't. They are alive in his presence. That's the truth of scripture. This was the truth they refused to accept. So they came up with their own questions, doubting the truthfulness of what God has said. Please, friends, please be careful. It's good. It's okay to have doubts. It's okay. It's okay to come to the Lord with questions. We need to be careful, though, when we put our doubts as a judgment on God. Because I believe this, God can't do that. Whoa, wait a minute. You are not in charge of God. Nobody ever asked you to. We need to be careful that we don't allow our doubts to define God. The final question that people come to Jesus with is what I'm calling a question of technicalities. Starting in verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, out of all the questions here, this actually could be an honest question. This might be a group of people saying, wow, he's, he's answered these really wisely. I'm curious what he'll say about this. This was a common topic of debate amongst the religious leaders. They would sit around, you know, while they're sipping tea and, and watching sports. They'd be like, hey, what do you think? What, what do you think's the greatest law? Well, what's the most important law? Well, I think this. Oh, that's foolishness. I think this. And they would love to go back and forth. It was great fun. It was kind of a thing that they would do. Because they wanted to know which law can we look at and then understand the entirety of the rest of the law on that one. Help us to understand. There were different schools of thought that mostly boiled down to two options. The first one was love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. That the love of God was the most important thing. Therefore, everything in the law was ultimately about loving God, and that was one way of looking at it. So anything that taught us to love other people was less important than anything that taught us how to be holy and how to love God. So they would reinterpret the law based on that ultimate idea. There was another school of thought. I think you can imagine what it is. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entirety of the law is about showing us how to love other people. So we're going to reinterpret everything, redefine everything. All the stuff about holiness and sacrifice and all that, it's really about just loving other people. If we just love other people, we are upholding the law. These are the two different schools of thought. And so they come with this question. And look at Jesus, his answer in verse 37 to 40. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And the one crowd would go, aha, see? And he said, wait a minute, I'm not done yet. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. What Jesus is saying is you can't separate these two. If you truly love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, you must love people. And if you truly are trying to love people, you must love God because he is their greatest need. First, we need to set our sights on loving God. 
And then we also need to set our sights on loving people. And we can never take one of those to redefine the other. While this is an ancient Jewish debate that's going on here, I think Christians struggle with this today. So often when I hear people say, well, being a Christian, we just need to love people. Well, that's part of it. But too often that means I'm going to love people. It means I'm not going to talk to them about their sin. I'm not going to share the gospel with them because that's not loving. That's like a lifeguard looking at somebody who's drowning and saying, hey, man, you're drowning. That's offensive, says the swimmer. Okay, I'll just leave you be because I love you. just want you to feel good as you drown and die. No, the lifeguard has to get in there and has to save the person whether the person wants wants it or not. If we truly love other people, we must point them to a loving God. And if we truly love God, then we must love those that he has created according to his perfect, holy, and righteous standard. Too often we want to hide behind these technicalities in our faith. I've heard people say that if God is truly sovereign, then it just doesn't matter what we do. That's foolishness. Because the Bible clearly says God is sovereign and clearly says that what you do matters. And if the Bible says it, it's true. Quit trying to wiggle out of things with a technicality. Let's be careful that we don't hide behind technicalities in our faith. Let's look finally at the most important question, because while they're done with Jesus, he's not done with them. Verse 41, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, how is it that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared ask him any questions. This is kind of difficult because what Jesus is doing, remember, he's speaking to religious scholars and leaders, and he's using their way of thinking to challenge them. So I don't want to go too deep down this rabbit hole, but just to understand that in Jewish thinking, the the older ancestor is always considered worthy of greater honor than the younger ancestor. The grandfather is more important and of higher honor than the grandson. Got you with me so far? So if someone is your forefather, they are worthy of your respect. You owe it to them to respect them. But what Jesus is doing is he's looking at this psalm where David, and it clearly lays out that the Messiah will be the offspring of David. Okay, so David is the older generation. The Messiah would be the younger generation. So in Jewish thinking, David is more important than the Messiah. And yet what the text says in Psalm 110 is that David calls the Messiah his Lord. Now, this is a very technical way that Jesus is getting at their hearts. But here's the question. If you get nothing else, listen to this. Here's the question Jesus says that each one of us must answer. Who? is Jesus. So do you guys want to debate all of these other things? You want to have all these doubts and these technicalities? You want to try to get me in one camp or the other, but you need to answer this question, who am I? Who is Jesus? Because under and through and in and over all of our other questions, 
That one is more important. Who is Jesus? If David could call Jesus or the Messiah Lord, then David is admitting that someone would come from his offspring who was more important than him. How can an offspring be more important than their forefather? That's if they're part of a greater family. The Messiah must truly be the son of God. Who is Jesus? It doesn't matter what earthly side they're on if they can't correctly answer who is Jesus. It doesn't matter what our doubts are if we can't correctly answer who is Jesus. It doesn't matter what technicalities we get caught up in if we cannot correctly answer who is Jesus. Because the answer to that question, who is Jesus, causes us to give our lives to him, to say, you are God and I am not. You are Lord Most High, and I am not. And yes, I have questions, but I will trust you, and I will follow you. People come to me all the time and say, I have these questions. I have these doubts. I have these concerns. And I'll challenge them. Do you trust Jesus? Take your questions. Take your concerns. Put them in a suitcase and follow Jesus. And along the way, you'll find some of those questions might just get answered. Along the way, some of you might find out some of those questions are absolute garbage and should be thrown away. And along the way, you're going to find out that some of those questions, according to God's perfect wisdom and timing, might not get answered when you think they should. But keep following Jesus because he is the Son of God. He is our Lord. He is our Messiah. So let me ask you the same question Jesus asked. In your own life and in your own heart, who is Jesus? Is he just a great teacher to settle some debate? Is he just a a former of, of a political party or this side or that side? Or is he truly the son of God who went to the cross in your place to die for you, to save you from your sins, who reigns on high forever and ever? And are you willing to take all of your questions and bow before him and say, I will trust you no matter what the answers are to my questions? That's worship, friends. That's not us sitting in judgment on God. That's us bowing before the judgment of God. And when we do that, we get the joy of heaven, perfection of salvation with God forever and ever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need you. We get hung up on our questions and our doubts, and and we want you to prove things to us. We get hung up with one another trying to pigeonhole each other into which camp we're in on certain theological or political or earthly issues. But Father, I pray that under and through it all, yes, we might have disagreements on things, but may there be a greater agreement on the most important question, who is Jesus? Father, may each one of us answer that according to your word in our own hearts. May each one of us fall before you and submit to you because you are Lord Most High, our Savior, our Messiah. Each one of us then take those questions, some of them honest, some of them meaningful and real, some of them coming maybe from some doubts. But may we bring them to you and say, Jesus, we trust you. Whatever the answer is, 
whenever you plan on giving it, and even if you don't. I believe you are Lord Most High, and I will follow you and trust you no matter what. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.